Hello everyone, I'm Lydia. And I'm Sara. And this is Hitchcock Happy Hour's November special. Where for the entire month of November, we'll be discussing the evolution of film noir from the hard-boiled to the femme fatale. One cynical cocktail at a time. Cheers! Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Sara. And I'm Lydia. And today we're super excited um, to talk about this movie that Lydia is going to just blow our minds away with. Uh, Lydia, what movie are we talking about today? Oh, today we are talking about the 1950 classic black comedy noir, Sunset Boulevard. Black comedy. That's I've never heard it described that way, but that's so true. It absolutely, absolutely is. And to discuss this amazing movie, we have a fucking amazing cocktail. I'm not gonna lie. Um, it is so good. I forgot how much I love this cocktail. We are drinking a Ramos Gin Fizz today. It's such a classic. Oh my god. This is a fun one. I. I just love this cocktail. It's one that's kind of hard to find. Um, Most places don't make it because it is kind of intense labor-wise. This was fun to make because I realized it's actually not as hard as I thought it was going to be. It does have more ingredients, I would say, than the average cocktail. But what I appreciate about it is it's a lot of stuff that you probably have on hand. Um... So if you aren't familiar with this classic cocktail, it comes from the late 1800s in New Orleans. Um, So it's been around for a really long time. Um, The myth around it is that you have to shake it for like 11 minutes, which I don't think is true. But in this heyday, the bar that pioneered (laughs) it. Oh my God. Yeah, (laughs) I I definitely did not. (laughs) My arm would be so tired. Dead. Um, But yeah, it's a really fun one. It's interesting because it has orange flower water in it, um, which really makes it like bright and floral. It works so well with um, the other ingredients like the lemon and gin and cream. It's definitely a weird one. Um, And let me just tell you, when we publish this recipe, do not be disturbed. Because after you shake it, there will not be as much foam as you think. But you will add the club soda. You will add the club soda and it will create the foam. I was disturbed because they said to use a tall glass. And I put the drink from the cocktail shaker into the glass. And it was like maybe a third of the way up my tall glass. And I was like, well, this isn't going to end well. Like at least it will taste well. But then I added the club soda and it just started like rising it was dope (laughs) it's cool it's really good and Lydia and I both use the empress gin the purple gin that we've been using for our gin cocktails and I think Lydia made a really good point earlier when we were talking about it is that the empress specifically because it's pea blossom flower based really really complements the orange blossom water that you use for this and it's it's so good I think one one of the reasons it's like one of those cocktails that I think like places don't have this drink is because it's it's like an old school cocktail it's not like in the pop culture of now no, it's not one it's, of those like it's not like the new fancy like molecular mixology that I feel like everyone's into it is very old-fashioned it has cream it has egg white in it like we're talking about the era where like egg cream soda was like a thing yeah <laughs> like this is this is definitely like yeah. old school but it is super delicious it's and like to your point it's not super terribly hard to make and it's not um it does have a lot of ingredients but it's things you probably already have because it's just like regular like egg and um uh, egg white and, and cream and things like that but 
highly recommend this one. It's really good. I love this cocktail. I always forget about it, and it's it's delicious. Just so like, every time I make silky it, silky and luscious and decadent. So it felt perfect for today's film, which is kind of all of those things. It's old, silky and luscious and decadent. Silky, lush, sure. luscious, decadent. It's kind of like a time gone by vibe, which I feel like this recipe is very much that, and it has that kind of like sumptuousness um, that you kind of get from from like an old film. So, anyways. We felt like it was a good pairing. <laughs> I think I would choose this over the starboard sour if we're going creamy cocktails. I would too. I'm yeah. glad that you would. Because it's such a classic. Yeah, mm, it's really nice. Anyway. <laughs> Shall we jump in? So I think this will be pretty similar to what we normally do. We'll do like in a quick, a quick like about. We'll talk about the production. I'll like go into the plot. It will be great. We'll do some analysis at the end. <laughs> What's nice about this one is the plot is pretty straightforward. Yeah, compared to some other noirs. Yeah, I think that what's interesting about this film, and we'll obviously get into it, is really just more around how it critiques and interacts with Hollywood. And I think that that's kind of the fun part of this movie. And are we going to talk about the 1950 Oscars Best Actress uh, race as well? Oh, we <laughs> aren't, so we should. <laughs> oh, um, I will talk about that if you want Perfect. to talk about that. Perfect, I will that. love but, nothing uh, There's a moment, this movie, um, I just feel like this movie has like a life-imitating art moment, so we can discuss that at Yes, the end. <laughs> it very much does. Um, so let's dive into it. So Sunset Boulevard is a 1950 American black comedy film noir Directed and co-written by Billy Wilder. I don't know if you knew that. And I know, we love him. And it's produced and co-written by Charles Brackett. It was named after this major street that runs through Hollywood. If you're not from the U.S. or familiar, Sunset Boulevard is very famous. Um, And it, you know, L.A. is like very much the center of American movie industry. So it's really relating to kind of the, the locale of this film. It stars William Holden as Joe Gillis, who's a struggling screenwriter, and Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond, who's a former silent film star who draws him into her demented fantasy world, where she dreams of making a triumphant return to the screen. There's a lot of interesting like cameos and star power in this film. So Eric von Straham, who's a famous director, plays Max von Meierling, who's her devoted butler. Um, there's Nancy Lloyd, Jack Webb, um, Lloyd Goff, and Frank Clark, who also appear in supporting roles. Um, director Cecil DeMille and gossip columnist Hedda Hopper play themselves in this film. And it also includes cameo appearances by long, like, by, like, leading silent film actors Buster Keaton, H.B. Warner, and Anna Q. Nilsson. So it's, it's super weird that it does that, and it's like you don't see things like that in old movies, which is so interesting. Um, seeing like old film stars play themselves. It's, it's very like, meta. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, very meta for sure. So this film has been pretty much praised from the moment that it was released. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including nominations in all four acting categories, which doesn't happen that often and it did win three academy awards it's ranked generally among the greatest films ever made and um it's included in preservation for the national film registry it's also ranked number 12 on the american film institute's list of 100 best films of the 20th century um so i mean this is 
just a well-regarded film. It's really iconic. And in terms of film noir, I think it kind of hits at the end of the film noir era. But there's something just really special and that I think we keep coming back to with this movie that's really irreplaceable. Yeah, and I I think it's really interesting to, like, again, we'll talk about kind of what happened with the Academy Awards that year, but, like, you have to understand, like, this year that this movie was nominated for this many awards is the same year All About Eve also was nominated for a bunch of stuff. So we have, like, two of the best movies of all time kind of going head-to-head and two of the best actress, like, actresses and acting performances of all time going head-to-head as well. And so... It's really, it just shows you, like, how timeless this movie is, too, that it's still, like, it's still being ranked amongst that movie, because All About Eve, I think, is is also, I think they're probably equally as well-known, and we'll we'll probably do an episode about All About Eve, because it's also about the same exact thing, and it's also very iconic, Um, but, yeah, I think all in all, like, I agree, like, this movie, rightfully so, is just placed in kind of the national film lexicon and it's such an interesting mirror to the Hollywood like film industry as well yes and we'll talk about it too because I think in terms of the time that it came out it came in a really interesting time where again Hollywood was kind of reaching this this point where it was having to change and there were a lot of factors within the systems that were kind of forcing I think the industry itself to be reflective of what Hollywood is and how how it's going to evolve into the future. Um, so it's just kind of this interesting moment in time and again critiquing kind of the underbelly of of Hollywood. I think we see that a lot today and it's something that I think is kind of the narrative around Hollywood but I think this is one of the films that really propelled that narrative kind of to the forefront. So let's talk a little bit about the plot. <laughs> we'll just get through it. Um, so the film starts at a mansion on Sunset Boulevard and a group of police officers and photographers discover the body of Joe Gillis. He's floating face down in this swimming pool of, of this like crazy 20s mansion. Um, it cuts to a flashback where he begins to relate the events leading to his death. Again, this is like a very classic noir-ism Um, where they're really relying on the narration to kind of lead you through this story. So it cuts to six months earlier where down on his luck screenwriter Joe tries selling Paramount Pictures producer, a producer named Sheldrake on a story that he submitted. Um, A script reader named Betty Schaefer harshly critiques it, unaware that Joe is the author of the script. Um, He's just having generally a very bad time. So later, while fleeing from the repo men who are seeking to take his car back, um, he turns into the driveway of a seemingly deserted mansion after uh, his tire blows. He conceals the car, um, but he hears a woman inside calling to him, um, mistaking him for a man bringing a coffin for her deceased chimpanzee. (laughs) So he's ushered in by Max, who's the butler, And Joe recognizes the woman as a long-forgotten silent film star named Norma Desmond. Upon learning that Joe is a writer, Norma asks his opinion of a script that she's written for a film about Salome. Also, uh, of note is the fact... No, yeah, I have noticed Salome, yeah. Of note is the fact that the script... The script is, like, 2,000 pages long. It's huge. It looks like a giant Bible. Yeah, this is, like, going to be a four-hour-long production. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. It's, like, definitely stream of consciousness, but, like, biblical But, like, vibes. Biblical. Yeah. Yeah. Salome. Salome. I was like, does it sound like salami if I say that? <laughs> I know, but I think that's how it's pronounced. I don't I know. So I honestly don't know. I, I don't can't, know. I cannot say. Can't tell you. Could have rewatched <laughs> it, but I didn't. So, here we are. Um. So, this... This is what she really sees as her comeback. She plans to play the lead role herself in her return to the screen. Joe finds her script terrible, but, you know, he kind of sees an opportunity and he flatters her into hiring him as a script doctor. Um, So she insists that he move into her mansion. um, And she, she kind of realizes he's in a sticky situation. She pays for his apartment, which is now past due. Um, and kind of, you know, generally provides him a lifestyle that he's not able to afford himself. Um, he resents at this at first because, you know, he's someone who's young and wants to be independent, but he gradually accepts his dependent situation. He sees that Norma refuses to accept that her fame has evaporated, and he learns that Max, um, you know, has been secretly writing these fan letters that she receives. Like, she's very much in this weird, nightmarish mansion um that's very much like kept from reality she's living in like a full-blown delusion that that people are like people around her are enabling 100 percent. 100 percent. so max explains that norma is incredibly emotionally fragile and that she's attempted suicide in the past um the way that they discover this is like super creepy he realizes there no, there's no knobs on any doors like no locks um, I just thought that was, like, such an interesting yeah, detail. Yeah, it's really, really subtle, 100%. Yeah. Um, so Norma lavishes attention on Joe. She buys some expensive clothing. Um, she also has probably the most awkward New Year's Eve party of all time, where <laughs> he thinks it's going to be this big event. He's wearing this, like, tux. There's, you know, all of this food laid out, like a band, and it turns out that it's just them. Which is super awkward. Um, so. The whole thing is pretty cringe. Like yeah. it's it's just like it's it's just like one heartbreaking like thing that you realize about her after another. Like you just feel so bad for her. Truly. Um, yeah. It's probably one of the cringiest scenes in film history. <laughs> one one thousand percent. Yeah, and that's where I think everybody realizes and the narration too kind of supports this that she's clearly fallen in love with him. Um it's no longer just, you know, a professional working relationship. Like it's very much she, you know, wants to be with him even though the situation isn't like appropriate. Well, also because, like, he clearly in the beginning was just, like, using her to get out of a sticky situation, and he was 100% taking advantage of her, and she kind of pretended like she knew that, but also was using him, and he's kind of falling in love with, like, Betty Schaefer on the side, and so it's, like, this whole thing, but he's then, like, falling in love with the lifestyle that she provides him, but not her. It's just, like, it's all around super cringy. <laughs> it's really complicated. So he kind of tries to let her down gently, but she slaps him and retreats to her room. He, since it's New Year's Eve, he wants to go be with people his age. So he visits his friend Artie um, and, and asks him about staying at his place while at his, his party. He again meets Betty, who's the scriptwriter, who's Artie's girlfriend, um... Betty has looked into some of his past scripts and she finds a scene that she thinks has potential, but Joe is kind of uninterested at this point. Um, He decides that he wants to stay with Artie for a few days and kind of not 
live dependently on Norma anymore, but when he phones Max to have him pack his things, Max tells him that Norma had cut her wrists with a razor. So he rushes back to the mansion and returns to her side. Um, Norma has Max deliver the edited version of her script to her former director, Cecil B. DeMille, at Paramount. And she starts getting calls from a Paramount executive named Gordon Cole, and she refuses to speak to him, anyone except DeMille. So she has Max drive her and Joe to Paramount in her incredible car. It's a 1929 Isada Freshini, and it's incredible. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's un- incredible, but it's also, like, her entire lifestyle is, like, a relic from the past. Like, you can tell that the car is, like, people are... It, it, it's really out of place. Like, you can tell that while it all looks old to us, for that time to see that car is, like, super... They were Everyone was like, why is she driving this, like, super outdated car? Yeah, but it's clearly also very high-end. Like, it, it's Oh, it's, very like, much, super expensive, yeah. Yeah, but it, so it's interesting because it's very much speaking to that, like, you know, time gone by. <laughs> yeah, her, her entire lifestyle is very, like, gilded age like jazz like into the jazz age like vibe I think yeah very much so so when she gets to the studio many of the older studio employees recognize her and warmly greet her like again kind of playing into her like fantasy that everyone kind of creates for her um isn't this kind of the first time that she like comes out of her she does a long time like nobody's like seen her for a long time no she's very much like a a recluse like she's a recluse um and so yeah and I think it feels good for her to be back kind of in the studio and around people who still know who she is like there's been time that's passed but people still know who she is and she gets that adoration that you know she's really looking for so DeMille welcomes her affectionately and he treats her with really great respect um But he very tactfully avoids questions about her script because he considers the film to be awful. Um, Meanwhile, we learn that the reason she had been getting these calls is actually because uh, they want to use her car, her very unusual car for a film. And DeMille is kind of like, let's just like, we can, I'll buy you five cars. Like, I don't care, but I don't want to like get involved with her. He's, like, really... DeMille, like, handles the situation so well. He's also, he's like, I don't want to get involved with her, but I also don't want to, like, hurt her feelings, so let's just pretend. Let's just, like, indulge her a little bit. It's really sad, but it's, like, really... Yeah. Well, and I think it's especially sad because even though we, the audience, know that everyone considers her script awful and they're not moving forward with it, she now, in her mind, thinks that DeMille wants to produce her film. So she begins preparing for this imagined comeback. She's going, undergoing these, like, insanely rigorous beauty treatments. There's, like, a whole glam squad, like a, I guess, like, a 1950s glam squad. She's doing all of these weird treatments and peels. It's very strange. (laughs) The Um, peels. It's very weird. To try to get ready for, for what she sees as a return to the screen. So... Meanwhile, Joe's been secretly working nights at Betty's Paramount office where he's been collaborating with her on an original screenplay. Um, This moonlighting, though, is found out by Max, who reveals that he was actually a respected film director who had discovered Norma as a teenage girl, made her a star, and actually was her first husband. Yeah, which is, like, very disturbing. And that was also, like, the first time I saw this movie and they, like, dropped that plot twist. I was like, like, oh my god. 
Yeah. And I think, again, like, after she had divorced him, he found his life just unbearable. So he abandoned his career to become her servant. So she's surrounded by people who just, again, like, indulge this fantasy, and he's so infatuated with her. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Meanwhile, despite Betty's engagement to Artie, she falls in love with Joe, um, who begins to feel guilty. Norma has discovered a manuscript with Joe and Betty's names on it, so she phones Betty, and she insinuates that Joe is not the man that he seems. Joe overhears this conversation and invites Betty to see for herself. When she arrives, he pretends he's satisfied being a gigolo. However, after she tearfully leaves, he packs for return for his return to his old Ohio newspaper job. He bluntly informs Norma there's not going to be a comeback, that her fan mail comes from Max and she's been forgotten. He disregards Norma's threat to kill herself and the gun she shows him to back it up. And as he walks out of the house, Norma shoots him three times and he falls into the pool dead. So the flashback ends there and it cuts to probably one of the greatest scenes in cinema history. It's probably one of the most recognizable as well. And it, it like the like something that's in our um, vocabulary that a, a phrase that we say all the time comes from this movie and I don't think people know that actually no I I think a lot of people don't but it is the end to this film and it's incredibly iconic so when the flashback ends it cuts to the house which is now filled with police and reporters Norma is at this point has completely lost touch with reality she thinks that she's getting ready to film Salome like she thinks that all these newsreel cameras are there to film her her film her comeback film and, and what's interesting, too, is, again, Max and the police play along with this fantasy. So Max sets up a scene for her and calls action. And as the cameras roll, she pretends that she's a princess dramatically descending this, like, grand staircase of her Hollywood mansion. Um, she pauses and makes this, like, super cringy, impromptu speech, um, which, again, just, like, feeds this very like the acting in, is oh, so incredible in like this scene and it's crazy because i mean she's just such an incredible actress like she just so she goes there right like she just goes to this like insane place um but she says i promise you i'll never desert you again because after salome we'll make another picture and another picture this is my life it always will be nothing else just us the cameras and these wonderful people out here in the dark and then she ends with the most iconic line ever. Are you ready to get goosebumps? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And then she walks towards the camera, like totally breaking the fourth wall in this like amazing hallucination of grandeur and the film ends and it's perfect. And it's I love it. so good. It's the best scene in the whole movie and it's worth the wait. <laughs> and also I think of note too is that... Um, the narration is actually Joe postmortem narrating how he died, which is so weird and interesting. And it just adds like everything about this movie adds a level of like irksomeness, but in a in a not in like a dissonant way, but in like this very grandiose kind of delusional way to this movie. And everything about this movie is very like fantasy like, but in reality at the same time it's very interesting like the whole structure of this movie very much sets up the mood 
and the way it ends is just it's like it, you're just you also are kind of like in this whole entire delusion with her and you, when it ends it's just like it's so heartbreaking and you can just see it in Max's face too and like everyone is just there just like this woman like they're all basically waiting to take her to prison or take her to jail for like murdering Joe and she's just like fully thinking that she's about to go do like an acting performance yeah it's and it's uh it's so good <laughs> so I mean acting in this film one million out of ten like oh my incredible. god incredible I think that oh my god she sets the standard <laughs> I mean what's so fascinating and I like I don't know if we're gonna talk about this but what's so fascinating about Gloria Swanson is like what the character like what's happening in this movie is like very much not as crazy but like very in line with like what was going on in her own life and like she was a very very popular silent film star didn't have an acting career for like many years like she didn't she wasn't one of the ones that did a transition to talkies successfully so she kind of was forgotten about for many years and this movie was her comeback movie and it's her most famous movie and so when you're watching her do this like speech at the end where she's fully like I think what's so intricate about it and that nobody else could do this except for somebody that is trained as a silent film actor because the acting style is so different is that she's playing a silent film actor who who did not successfully transition to talkies and that's exactly like what's happening in this movie and she just it's like it's so believable like it's just so it's so heartbreaking I mean she, the way that she does it is just so realistic and it's like oh it's so good. <laughs> I just love this movie so much. It was so fun to rewatch it because this is one of the movies that really got me into film noir and I think um, that really made me love old film. And I think that the story behind it is really interesting because this is an original script. This wasn't based on a novel. This wasn't adapted from anything else. And I think a lot of this was really, really came from Billy Wilder's experience coming from Berlin to LA. He came in the 20s. And it's him kind of as an outsider looking at American society and looking at the culture in Los Angeles and and kind of critiquing or, or engaging with what he saw. And I think what's really interesting is that um, in a lot of the articles that he read, it, it just talked about how interested he was with American culture and how, you know, he was really fascinated by all of these grand Hollywood houses that kind of remained in the late 40s. So this was what he was surrounded by. And so this is really him kind of exploring, like, to your point, like a fantasy of the reality that he was seeing every day. Um, And this was such an interesting time because there were many stars like Gloria Swanson, who had been former stars from this silent era that lived in these like grandiose 20s mansions although most of them were no longer involved in the film business so this is something that he would have been seeing all the time and that you know now it's we don't really see that it's like very different but that would have been kind of common yeah no I mean like it's just so interesting like including someone like Buster Keaton in this movie who even us today know him like everybody knows Buster Keaton but he did not successfully transition into talkies he's just famous for a silent film so he was also kind of one of the ones that he aged out of you know his fame and his um his kind of star power in Hollywood as did Gloria Swanson for a long time and I think you know 
showing kind of that weird scene with like all of those it's like him and her and then the two other people playing like poker or they're playing some like card game or something yeah and it's just like the it's not like none of them look like they're having none of them look happy like none of them look like they're having a good time and it's just very much like they clearly it's just like they get together to do this and reminisce about the past and it's really sad more than anything and I think that's just like it's kind of one of those very like hard looks at like the which is a timeless you know theme of Hollywood is like the ageism in the film industry and it's it's so fascinating the way that they do it and um and by getting all those people that who who were actually experiencing that to play themselves in this movie is so meta it's super meta and I think what's interesting too is so Gloria Swanson is only 50 at the time that this film is made so it's not like she's this like like a senile old woman no i mean i think now we consider like 50 isn't 50 is kind of like your midlife like (laughs) you know it's not it's not necessarily old and so i think that it is like a very interesting age to have her her at because again like this is very much an era where i don't know that women necessarily had super long careers like you very much capitalized on your your 20s and 30s and then after that um you kind of were relegated to smaller parts or kind of more typecast moving forward. So I think this was, this is a really unique and special role that we haven't really seen before. And we can talk a little bit more about kind of her role. I think she, she does kind of fulfill the femme fatale in this movie, but I think it's done in a really interesting way. And especially coming kind of towards the end of the film noir era, I think um, it, it's just an interesting foil to like, you know, the Barbara Stanwyck, of double indemnity that we see kind of in the early 40s yeah I totally agree oh my god it's so good and it's interesting because it's Billy like Billy Wilder who did both double indemnity and this movie so it's it's like clearly him kind of doing a full circle with his own type of um character writing which is so fascinating yeah I mean this film is amazing and what I think is also hilarious about this movie is that I think because there was this general, there there were a lot of silent stars who didn't make that transition, who were kind of this like weird, like, I want to say like almost like, they're just kind of these like foggy, like presences in Hollywood almost like they're kind of ghostly. Um, but what's hilarious about this movie is that, um, they didn't really look at any one star in particular, but everyone thought this movie was about them. And yeah. he was, like, actually super affected by it. Um, which I, I and think And then is, you're like, well, it's not about... It's just because all of you went through the same exact thing. You're not special. There is literally so many of you. But um, it, it is kind That's of That's kind of the theme, though, of Hollywood, yeah. is that you're not special. You are expendable. You are expendable. <laughs> like, and once you reach a certain point or like you're no longer useful like the system doesn't care about you um so let's talk a little bit about the writing because like I mentioned I think this film is really unique in that it's it's an original script and it's something that Wilder and Brackett have started working on together they ended up bringing in um a former writer for life named DM Marshman Jr. who helped them to further develop the storyline um they really liked a critique that he did of their film and so they wanted to bring him in to kind of help them flesh it out a little bit more they weren't really satisfied with where they were able to get it so what I love about this is that they really kept the details kind of the full details of the story hidden from Paramount pictures which I think is really interesting 
And they were really trying to avoid this super restrictive censorship um, of this time. That's really interesting, though, because, yeah, that makes sense. Because I was like, when you watch this movie, you're like, this movie is a major critique on the Hollywood film industry. How did they allow it to get made? Yeah. Um, So that's what's really interesting is that they would just submit a, a few pages of the script at a time. And I think, so, as context, like, Wilder and Brackett, they had produced, like, some of the biggest, like, some huge hits for Paramount. So they had, I think, the ability to do something like that if they were new to the scene. Like, I don't think that that would have flown, but they had kind of the cachet and the trust of the system to kind of continue to, <laughs> to like, um, to, like, to do this. Um, there were a few things that did need to get rewritten, such as there's a line that says, I'm up that creek and I need a job, which they had to change to, I'm over a barrel and I need a job, which apparently somehow is better. It's funny that they changed little things like that, but they kept some of the more like steamy or provocative pieces in, but I digress. Yeah, yeah, like the cougar vibes yeah. in this movie. Oh yeah. yeah, hardcore cougar vibes. Well, the best part though is that Paramount had been led to believe that he was adopting a story from, he was adopting this story from a story called A Can of Beans, which did not exist. He, like, literally made it up. So it allowed him to have, like, a lot of freedom because he said he was adapting it from this book called The Can He's of like, Beans. He's like, it's like, it's already a famous book. It's fine. Yeah. So by the time that they started a filming... A Can of Beans? A Can of Beans. Oh, why? <laughs> because I feel like he... Yeah, it's a can of beans. They're trying to they're trying to like spill the beans on Hollywood. Or yeah, whatever. apparently. But isn't That's that amazing? So funny. I just love that. Billy Wilder is so shady. I love it. He is so shady. Um, he wrote an entire movie about working with Raymond Chandler and like won a bunch of Oscars for it. I love him. That's the type of shade that we look for. Yeah, one hundred percent. So, anyways, can of beans. But um, what was interesting is by the time they started filming in early May of nineteen forty nine. Only a third of the script was finished, and he didn't know how it was going to end. <laughs> mm, okay. So it, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, it's it's just a very interesting style all around, too. It's not necessarily something that had really been seen before. It has these elements of film noir, but it also has this, like, very dark comedy. Um, so it, it's it's kind of interesting. I think that was quite a common, like style of production in silent film is that they would like pitch an idea and then they would kind of just like figure it out as they went along because they didn't need to like write dialogue really or I think they did I mean they had dialogue but it wasn't like important because you know you can't hear it but so I mean it's really interesting that they adopted that like for producing this movie it kind of gives it that like authentic feel of like it's it's being like haphazardly put together as it's being produced which is so interesting which is amazing because this feels like a film and like you said there's so many iconic lines like this film is probably one of the most iconic films you didn't know was iconic and it's interesting to think that this was a movie that started production with a third of it done and they actually had to redo parts of it which i think were interesting too like the beginning is completely changed in the original like um, there's some pretty major differences, um, that were done kind of along the way, but the result is something that I think is just, it's so classic and it's, it continues to be referenced throughout our cultural lexicon and also film lexicon. So good. So. Besides that one line at the end, the other line that sticks out to me is obviously, 
I am big. It's, it's the, the picture that's got small. small. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Oh my god. I think like besides this movie, the only other movie I can think of that has as many iconic lines is like it's maybe all about Eve, but Casablanca is like the only other one that I that I can think of. Here's like not at you, not many. Uh, there's so many lines in Casablanca that are like it has so many famous lines in it, but um, like and then all about Eve has just like some of the most iconic lines ever too. But like, I don't, yeah, I don't think that there's many that have so many that are like that really are layered. Like the lines in this movie are so layered because there's such a critique on the film industry. It's just so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the film industry were offended when this film came out. Oh, but, uh... I'm not surprised. It's <laughs> probably yeah. why it didn't win many Oscars. Yeah, but I think what's interesting though is overall the critical reception was super positive and I think people really connected to it, um, especially a lot of people also in the film industry. Like, it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, well, that's what I find so fascinating about, like, All About Eve was had the literal same theme and critique of the film industry, but it was way more subtle in its approach because it wasn't actually, it was actually set in like the theater world. And so it wasn't as obvious that it was, it was um, being so super like critical of the film industry. And it won, I think it won, it was, um, it surpassed Gone with the Wind at the time for winning the most Oscars. And so clearly like, you know, the film industry and, like, the newspapers and stuff like that, like, uh, the the political game of the Academy Awards is, like, very much a thing still in the, now, but, like, was very much a thing then. And, and you can definitely tell that this movie, like, while it was nominated for so much, didn't win very much as well. Yeah, I mean, it was nominated for 11 and it won three, four. Yeah, <laughs> and not the main ones. No, kind of obscure ones. So let's talk a little bit about casting, because that, I think, is a really interesting part. Um, I mean, again, I think this is such an interesting time, and there were a lot of stars that would have fit the bill for this for this character. Um, so, well, so they talked through a lot of... So there's there were a lot of people that they approached. So they really wanted Mae West for this role. Oh, that would have been awesome. Yeah, but she was very much... I mean, I think... She did she, the transition pretty well. She but. she did, and she also very much saw herself as a sex symbol, even as she got older. Yeah. So she was... She definitely, like, didn't... Yeah, she definitely, like... She didn't make the transition to post-code, but, like, was just vibing. <laughs> like, yeah, and I, and I think that she wasn't someone who saw herself as part of that group, so she was frankly offended that they would ask her to play a Hollywood husband. Like, I love Mae West. Me too. She's, <laughs> she's amazing. She's incredible. And actually, I mean, it's kind of interesting. She was very much someone who, who did what she wanted, and she did make a career that way. Like, she did the films she wanted to do, and she did some pretty, like, pretty crazy stuff like films oh yeah and and like if you watching some of her movies like (laughs) you see her so she has some iconic lines too for sure yeah and she's very much i think what you think of when you think of like an old timey hollywood starlet so she was considered so was greta garbo paula who had retired i think yeah she wasn't interested clara bow was considered norma shearer um they also looked at mary pickford um, she was, like, not about acting as a cougar. <laughs> um, it, and so it was interesting because, um, 
they had gone those to are the, all those names yeah. are all like people that i those were the exact people yep. that i would have thought were considered so yeah so they after kind of this slew of like no's they went to uh george kukor for advice and he suggested swanson she had been one of the most fetid actresses of the silent screen era so she would have been you know still probably well known by audiences who were who were going to this film um she was really known for her beauty and talent and she had a very extravagant lifestyle that people would have been aware of like she was kind of one of those celebrity figures she was like in in the in the gossip column exactly so in a lot of ways she did resemble that that norma desmond character she hadn't been able to make that smooth transition to talking pictures pictures but what was interesting is that unlike desmond in the film she had um she left Paramount, not the other way around, and she turned her back on the studio to sign with United Artists and take control of her own career, um, where she was selecting and producing her own films. It ended up with like a pretty big flop that we'll talk about. It's interesting because it's actually related to Max, who plays her butler, which is kind of interesting, so we'll talk through that. Um, but by the time that they found her, she had kind of accepted the end of her film career she had moved to new york in the 30s she had been working in radio where she was making like 300 bucks a week or something like she wasn't making a lot um she had kind of tried to start to get into television but um and and she had done some like broadway acting but she was not like she wasn't she wasn't doing well and so though she wasn't really seeking that comeback she was like very intrigued when wilder approached her with this role so my mind is just still quite like i i so i'm like running through these people that were approached and i'm like yeah those were the when you said like multiple people were approached i'm like oh those were the exact names that went through my mind and like garbo made the transition successfully she's literally like the like the most iconic like star of the old time you know old hollywood era and like even with sound like she's just she's an amazing I love Greta Garbo like everybody loves Garbo but she was she retired like she left the film industry so I can see her not wanting to return because that didn't really it didn't really like reflect her situation but Norma Shearer is very quite interesting because her story is like very very fascinating too in that you know she made she made the transition pretty pretty successfully but she was married to Irving Thalberg who was the um like the head of production at uh, MGM and she was already quite famous before they got married but they got married and he died really young and you could see like she had a very successful career like in the pre-code era and like she had some pretty good movies post-code too but you could see her I'm thinking about like scenes of like her coming back to the films the film studios after a long period of time and and everybody that was like older treating her with respect just because she was married to Irving Irving Thalberg and not actually because like they want to work with her but just because of like this long-standing respect that they had for her she would have been quite an interesting person to to be in this role but I think casting Gloria Swanson in this just it it she she brought something to this role that was just so fascinating that I just like it's it's an acting performance that has kind of gone unmatched for many years yeah I agree. I mean, I think this is kind of like a once in a lifetime performance and she does, I mean, again, like I think you brought up a really interesting point that her experience in film is what, or not in film, but in silent films makes her perfect for this because she's acting with her face. Everything is so over the top um, that it just makes it like 
so creepy and interesting and like she's acting as if she's never been in a talking picture i mean it's like it's exactly the it's exactly what the character is going through it's like she's and and gloria swanson isn't really in any talking pictures but for this for the reason of like that's how they would act but because this is what the role is it makes sense it's just it's just so fascinating like the way that this whole production is put together is so fascinating yeah it's so amazing and what I think is funny too is like I do think that she really embodies embodies the role so like let me give you a little anecdote because I thought this was amazing um so they told her she had to do a screen test for this film and she was like very chagrined about this she was she said I've made 20 films for Paramount like why do they want me to audition and like it just feels very much like Norma Desmond Norma Desmond (laughs) yeah um because I think Norma Desmond has a line where she says, without me, there wouldn't be any Paramount. Like, it's kind of that vibe. Um, and so she had asked if she could refuse the screen test. And her friend um, Kukor had said, you know, if, you, if they ask you to do 10 screen tests, do it. Like, or I will shoot you. <laughs> and so she was like, All Love right. George Kukor. <laughs> Love, Love George Kukor. <laughs> Um, and in 1975, in an interview, he re- Wilder recalled that um, there was a lot of Norma in her, actually. <laughs> you know. I love that. I feel like uh, refusing to do the screen test is her just, like, doing method acting for the role. Because it's exactly, like, what what um, what would happen. Like, <laughs> that's exactly what Norma Desmond would do. <laughs> yeah, and I think that what's interesting is, like Norma Desmond, like, she was used to being, like, everyone doing everything for her. Like, People used to carry her out of her dressing room, like, on a chair. And then she came to this production, and she was working like a dog. Like, she was working really hard hours. She didn't have kind of everything that she was used to before. Like, she kind of started at the bottom again for this film, and it was very much like, you know, it's not like she came right back, and it was easy. Um, So I thought that was interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the male role for this film, because Montgomery Cliff was originally signed to play Joe Gillis. Yeah. Yeah, but he, he, what he told Wilder is he had just been in a film where he played a young man being involved with an older woman. That film was called The Heiress, which came out the year prior. Yeah, he felt that he had been unconvincing in that role. Um, Wilder was very much offended by this, and he, he said if he's any kind of actor, he should be, he could be convincingly making love to any woman. And I That's kind of like what Wilder said to like Barbara Stanwyck when she was like, "I don't want to be in Double Indemnity because I'm not mean." <laughs> He's yeah. like, "You're an actor, just like, do the damn job." Yeah. So yeah. that was very much Wilder's take on it. But what's interesting, and this is kind of what I, what I love about this film. Um. So what they later learned, or what Brackett learned, was that Cliff had been involved in this affair. Um, with a former starlet named Libby Holman. She was 15 years his senior. Um, she had been accused of shooting her husband in 1932. It was, like, very public. It was later determined to be a suicide, but, like, it was, like, inconclusive. Maybe it wasn't. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't, but she believed that the plot of Sunset Boulevard was based on her life, and she supposedly threatened to kill herself if he took the role. (laughs) Which I feel like is the most Norma Desmond thing that she could have done. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they should have just cast her and him in this truly. <laughs> oh my god. Side note, the heiress is amazing. L- Olivia de Havilland is 
incredible in that movie and everyone should see it anyway it's it's anyway so again i think this is why it's so interesting is like life really imitates art with this film (laughs) oh my god in so many ways in so many ways so they were then kind of forced to reconsider some of the paramount contract player players so they focused in on william holden he had just made a really impressive debut um a decade earlier in golden boy he had also done um our town in 1940 um he ended up serving in the military in world war ii and his he had kind of tried to return to the screens after but it had been pretty unsuccessful so he really leapt at the role of joe gillis but right before shooting began he kind of went back to wilder and had cold feet about getting into the character um and so wilder asked him you know do you know Bill Holden, who was him? And he was like, well, yeah. And then Wilder was like, well, then you know Joe Gillis. Like, this is very much like an everyman, and this is, like, kind of your experience that you're living out, which is interesting. Yeah, like, down-on-your-luck artist kind of thing. I love Wilder's approach to, like, anyone that is like, I have cold feet. He's just like, just fucking just do fucking it. Why can't it? nobody be an actor that is supposedly an actor? I love it. Truly. It's so funny. Well, the really interesting thing is later Holden admitted that when he was a young actor starting out in Hollywood, he used to service actresses who were older than him. And that was like, I don't know if anyone's watched Hollywood, which was on Netflix, but he was very much one of those people who was, you know. And that that gas station in that show is like based on a real thing. (laughs) Like that's based on a real person. Well, it's so funny because William Holden, like basically without Barbara Stanwyck, like he would not have had a career. Like she, he was going to get fired on Golden Boy because he was so bad at it. And she, like, coached him and, like, spent time, like, teaching him how to act and, like, convinced the producers because she was so well-respected and, like, convinced the producers to, like, give him a chance. And then he became, like, super famous. And it's, like, because she was, like, no, we're going to, like, make you, we're going to, like, make you good at this. Which I just love. I love that story. I just love that. I, I love and that he so went, much. He and went on to have, like, a very successful career, like, after, especially after this movie. Yeah. No, he did. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about Eric von Stroheim, because I think this is also a very interesting character. So he plays Norma's faithful servant, Max, and her servant, protector, former husband, whatever you want to call him. He was actually a leading film director of the 1920s and had directed Swanson previously. What's really interesting is that... um, there like her career basically ended and she ended his career during a very troubled production of a film called Queen Kelly in 1929 that's the film that they're watching during one of their movie nights oh and he's my actually God. he's actually in it i don't know if you yeah so he he had directed that film. Um, it was actually financed by Joseph Kennedy who's the father of oh John my God. And Bobby Kennedy <laughs> Oh my god, it's so meta yeah. in so many ways. I in love so it. In so many ways. Again, this is why I think this film is like literally perfect. And the more I researched it, I was like, this is actually insane. Um, so Swanson was enraged by Von Straham's relentless perfectionism, as she called it, on the set. She complained to Kennedy, who had him fired, which left the production of the film to be finished by the studio, United Artists. It was a huge flop. It actually didn't even get released in the U.S. until, like, way, way, way later. I want to say, like, 50 years later. Like, it was a mess, and it literally destroyed her career. Like, she never really came back from that. Um, So, again, really interesting that they had that relationship, and that was kind of the nail in the coffin for both of them. I don't think that... um, 
Eric. So did they have kind of a contentious, like, relationship in this movie? They didn't say anything about that. I think that everyone, maybe it had happened, you know, at that point, 20 years previously. So I think maybe everyone had kind of moved on from that. But I did think that, again, it's such an interesting working relationship in in LA where wow that's crazy like small world kind of a thing yeah so I I think those are kind of the main the main points to make in the casting but I thought that it was literally so fascinating that's super interesting oh so let's talk a little bit about the filming of this movie because I think the filming the way that this is filmed is so iconic it's filmed by the same um the same cinematographer, John Seitz, who had worked on Double Indemnity. So he had worked with Wilder before. They had a great working relationship. Um, I love I love Wilder. Like, I want to be his friend so oh, bad. Yeah, he's iconic. At one point, Seitz was asking him what was required for this pet chimpanzee's funeral scene. And Wilder replied, you know, just your standard monkey funeral shot. <laughs> I love it. He's like, he gives absolutely zero fucks. Zero fucks. Um, it is, I mean, I just think that what's so interesting about his filming style is he seamlessly blends the, like, darkness and, like, heavy blacks of the mansion and, like, this vibe with the outdoor LA that's, like, bright and in, like, reality. And I think he does it in this way. And he does this in Double Indemnity, too. Like, all of it just feels seamless. It never feels, like, incongruent, which I think it easily could. And there's a lot of little things that I think he got from all of his time in the film industry that just make it really special. Like he used to sprinkle dust in front of the camera before filming to give it kind of that like mustiness, which is so interesting. And that's something he started in Double Indemnity. So it's there's cool. that one scene where it's like it's a it's a really iconic like like screen grab kind of that of um Norma Desmond standing it's like pitch dark but it's just the light of the project like the yes. film and it's like projector like on her oh it's so, so good. beautiful kind of the, yeah like, the the dust the, do- the dust yeah 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 it's uh it's incredible so I thought that, that very again, noir like very, very noir, noir vibes and yeah. I think what's interesting is he had used that same technique you know six years earlier with double indemnity and this is something that he's using again but it has a very different effect in this film but it does give it something that just all of the little details i think in this movie just really speak to the excellence of the people working on them um another interesting thing about this movie is it had the option to be shot in color but it was they decided to shoot it in black and white instead and i think if it had been shot in color it would have been a very different movie so yeah i don't think it would have been a i don't think it i don't think it would have been not necessarily not as good but I don't think it would have had the same depth that it has as a black and white film for sure agreed um one thing to note that I thought was really interesting is that it originally had a a different opening so instead of instead of the scene that we're used to where he's floating you know in the pool and he's narrating it actually was he's a corpse with the homicide tag on his toe and he's telling his story to the other bodies in the morgue. Oh yeah, no, I don't like yeah, that. Yeah, it would I have like been this terrible. Version better. Yeah, much better. It was so ill received at its opening in Chicago that they had to like cut it all together and like reshoot the beginning. Yeah, I feel like they they took the fantasy thing like one step too far. Too with that. far. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because the shot that, or the the scene that they replaced it with is probably one of the most iconic opening scenes in 
in history. <laughs> yeah, it's very recognizable. It is, and they had to do a lot to get that shot right. Like, you can't just film someone from underneath. They had to figure out all of these interesting ways to, like, further distort it, which, again, really, it captures this, like, surrealism that I think is so special about this film. Um, Edith Head is the one who designed the costumes, which of I love. Of course she is, love. our queen. We love her so much. And Gloria Swanson was pretty involved um, in kind of coming up with the fashion for this film, I think Edith had said this was, like, one of the hardest films that she designed for, like, ever. Um, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. She said it was so tough. Um, and it's interesting because, like, the clothing in this era, it is meant to be kind of up-to-date. They're a little bit behind, so it's kind of more, like, mid-40s in terms of her fashion. But they added a lot of embellishments to kind of, like, make them feel more, like, weird and specific to her taste. They're kind of, like, a little bit outdated, but, like, very exotic, which I think is fun. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. Um, and I love this quote from, from Edith Head. She said, because Norma Desmond was an actress who had become lost in her own imagination, I tried to look, I tried to make her look like she was always impersonating someone, which I thought was, like, a very interesting, like, that's and it so makes sense. true, though. Yeah. That's exactly it. what comes across 100%. Yeah. They also did a lot with her, her house. So the interesting thing about the house is the facade was actually, it's, it was owned by the Gettys. Um, oh, that checks out. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. later torn down to become an office development, which is like probably the saddest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. That's really sad. But what's funny is they actually put the pool in to appease, um, it, it was the ex-wife of Getty. Um, she had gotten this house as part of the divorce, but it had been considered like a phantom house or like a ghost house before. It had been built in the 20s. This like famous producer lived in it for like a year and then it was abandoned. So that actually kind of was the history of the house. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Everything about this like is just life imitating art. Like <laughs> literally so truly. So like, I think down to the house, which is so fascinating. Um, anyways, so let's talk a little bit about the analysis of this film. Because I think at its core, this film is actually a love story. And there's, like, kind of two love stories that are going on, like, congruently. The first is Max and Norma. Um, I think that Max's love for Norma and, like, his adoration of her really creates... It, it allows... It, like, softens Norma's character so that we, too, like her. I think if he wasn't here, a lot of her behavior we would see as, like just like very out of touch and very selfish but with Max there I think it kind of creates like you understand where her disillusionment is coming from and it's like very much stemming from people trying to protect her but I I think he also adds these like quips that kind of give like context into who she used to be that make her someone that we like pity but also like kind of find powerful it's like a very weird like yeah and I I think like with Max's character for sure it's that I think the most important thing that it brings to that relationship and and our view of Norma is that you don't necessarily blame her 100% for the delusion because it's all these people around her kind of indulging this fantasy and not letting her actually come to terms with what's going on in the real world. It's not necessarily her fault. It's just that nobody is letting her move on and they're all kind of just like preventing her from doing so, to be honest. And it's, it's, um, it definitely brings a little more depth to her character for sure. Absolutely. And then I think the other love story is Joe and Betty. So I think 
they kind of represent this other side of Hollywood. And I think that's kind of this belief that maybe you can still make it or there's still a story that's worth being told that someone will listen to. And I think there kind of is that optimism that they provide that I would say this film, again, it's like kind of a dark comedy. It's very self-aware. Um, but I think their story is what kind of gives you a little bit of hope. Like Betty potentially going on to make this movie that her and Joe wrote together and maybe like finally having this high-powered career, like making the success that everybody's looking for. It's kind of what keeps us not feeling like super depressed and hopeless at the end of this movie. Like there is kind of that like, little twinge of like a silver lining of like well maybe maybe she can make it like maybe there is more for her and like you know now that joe is dead you know he he couldn't surmount what is hollywood but maybe she can um and so i think that that, that's kind of an interesting an interesting love story that again kind of fuels this and you get that juxtaposition between his relationship with norma which is clearly, like, they both have ulterior motives for this relationship. They both are getting something out of it. Um, that And it's it's not a relationship that is equal, whereas, you know, his relationship with, with Betty, you're like, yeah, they're, they're equals, they're peers. Um, it feels okay, whereas his relationship with Norma, it does feel kind of icky, you know? Like, she's... Yeah. So I think that's kind of at the core. There is that that kind of love story that again similar to some of the other movies we've talked about I think that's what keeps us engaged in this movie and then let's talk about LA and its self-awareness of the industry because I think there's so much going on with this movie what's interesting about film noirs that we've talked about is they really are trying to critique the world that they're seeing so I think there is this critique of how Hollywood treats its stars, but also kind of this, this interesting, like using silent film eras as like an analogy for the new changes and pressures that Hollywood is facing at this time. So in the 1950s, we're seeing the rise of antitrust laws. There's the beginning of communist witch hunts with McCarthyism, where you know, studio execs and, and like high power people are being blacklisted. Um, and then there's also the rising popularity of TV, which is threatening Hollywood. And it's not clear, like, is this something that movies are going to go away altogether? Like silent films did, is this kind of the end of the road for us? Or, you know, what, what does television mean for our industry and, and like the future going forward. So I think it, there's kind of these interesting, a confluence of things that I, I think make this critique especially poignant. It's a critique, but also seems like the way you describe it right now is seems like kind of a warning as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is kind of that. Yeah, it is kind of like raising that red flag of like, wait, we need to like take a minute and take stock. Like, what is it that we're doing here? Um, but I think, you know, at the heart of it, it is this kind of dark, cynical critique of LA. Like we see, I think through Betty, Joe and Norma, kind of three different LA stories that play out a lot. That's, you know, Norma who has been discarded. She used to be a really treasured star and Hollywood has essentially thrown her away into like, and turned her into this forgotten relic. And then you have Joe who, you know, I feel like there's that line, like everyone from LA is from somewhere else. Like he's from Ohio. 
he came there to make it big, make it in Hollywood. Um, and now he's at a point where he, he's broke. He, no one will take his stories. He can't even, he doesn't even know how to be authentic anymore because he's so used to just being in the game. And so he's considering moving back to Ohio and taking his old journalism job. Like he's, I think he just is like beat up by Hollywood. And then you have Betty who was groomed to be a star. She even got a nose job. And then it turned out that, you know, the studio kind of threw her away, even though she came from this film family. Everyone in her family had been involved in film and she was maybe going to be the one who could become a star and not just, you know, production crew. Um, and now she's becoming like a, a script reader and, but hoping that maybe she can make it big and tell a story um, that people want to hear that's, that's, you know, meaningful. So it's, yeah, it's, it's perfect. I love it so much. It, it really is. I mean, it's so fascinating. And I think like now might be the time to interject with what happened with the Oscars that tell year. Me, tell and me, tell me. This so it's really, it's really fascinating. I think it's just one of those kind of full circle, um, life imitating art situations with this movie. So the Oscar best actress race that year, it was very, very like an infamous film pop culture moment. So um, Betty Davis was nominated for, uh, All About Eve, and, uh, Gloria Swanson was nominated for Sunset Boulevard, Judy Holliday was nominated for this other movie that I don't even know the name, <laughs> and Judy Holliday was, like, kind of her debut role, and then Betty Davis, who was kind of having flop after flop in her career in the late 40s, who had been a very, very successful, you know, mid to late 30s film star um had just made all about eve which kind of was her like comeback into hollywood and then obviously gloria Gloria swanson did the same thing and the entire like the entire like news outlets and gossip columns and everyone what what everybody was saying and talking about was that the the best actress race was between Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson and everyone thought Gloria Swanson was going to win and what happened was Judy Holiday won and she was kind of like this unknown person that did this one movie like young new starlet and she won over Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson and it was like the exact thing that both All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard were critiquing and we're saying is what happens and that's exactly what happened at the Oscars race that year for the best actress category and I just was like I just find that so fascinating like it's just one of those that yet another instance of life imitating art with this movie specifically I literally can't I mean it feels about right (laughs) yeah yeah and I'm like come on like this performance and all about eat like so good like both of them are incredible performances like I don't I've never even seen the movie Judy Holidays I don't even know what it's called like clearly it's not as you know important but I'm like how can you get better than this it's just it's hard to believe honestly yeah well I mean I feel like that's very much kind of what we talked about with like get out like I just it's so interesting and again for for a film it's a timeless issue yeah for sure I think what's interesting is for for films that are really critiquing society or the system to then be impacted and like that's such a snub. Snub isn't even strong enough. I mean it's just it's kind of ironic I guess in a sense but to be I don't know like I don't know at the hands of these. To have happened to them exactly what they're critiquing. Yeah exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's like this like super dark irony that 
I don't know, there's, I think there's part of you that, like, hopes it's going to be different because of what these films are talking about and trying to bring light to or critique, and then to have that happen, it's just kind of like, oh, okay, well, (laughs) it's literally what we were talking about. (laughs) So, there you have it. Um, This is one of my favorite movies ever. I think a lot of it is just, it's, it's just, like, the best drama because I think as the audience, like, you're kind of in on the joke, and that's why it's, it's such a good dark comedy because even though Norma doesn't see the illusions, we do. And there's, I don't know, I think it just, as an audience member, it's kind of like what we talked about in The Big Sleep. Like, I do think that you're kind of along for the ride and you feel like you're part of the movie in a way, which I think is is a really special feeling that this genre gives you that I don't know that a lot of other ones do. I agree, and I think it's rare um, to have a movie that has so many layers so much complexity and be so critical of the the industry that they're that they're using to make this movie and so I agree like it is one of my favorite movies as well I think it's a movie that everybody should see I don't I don't even if you're not into old movies I think this is just such a timeless issue in in many industries and many types of um, careers and jobs especially for women and so I think it's a really important um, it's a really important film uh, that I think is foundational to kind of like our pop culture and our American cultural lexicon. Zero and notes. Yeah, no. I just this I like have zero notes for this movie. Like nothing about this movie is wrong. <laughs> like every everything about this movie is perfect. Everything is perfect, and I think, yeah, I just think that this is such such a quintessential film. Again, it was fun to rewatch it because it just has so many iconic lines. The performances are incredible. The costumes are amazing. The set design is perfection. Like all of it, just creates this I mean it creates this alternate reality this like kind of dream world that echoes you know I think what what the issues are but it kind of creates it in a way that where it's like this nightmare and I I think it's like amazing and fascinating I just love it this movie's amazing everyone watch it (laughs) that's all I have to say this this gin fizz really got me so (laughs) no notes (laughs) got you in the feels I love it well that was um that was our analysis and discussion on one of the most complex films I think to come out of the golden age, Sunset Boulevard. Everybody should watch it. I think both of us agree that it's one of those ones that everybody should see. And join us next week. Yes, join us next week, as we will be discussing the final film of Noirvember, even though it's gonna technically be released in December, but it's Noirvember because we're gonna record it in November. <laughs> um, we're gonna. It's a technicality, um, but we just couldn't uh, we couldn't end November without talking about one of yet another um, super iconic film noir, Laura. Agreed. I can't wait to talk about this one. It will be so fun. The perfect way to to sum up what I think has been a fabulously dark and and dreary November. <laughs> Perfectly cynical. Yeah. Agree. Well, join us next week as we discuss uh, Laura and drink a champagne cocktail (laughs) of some sort. Absolutely. And until then, you know where to find us. Uh, New episodes dropping every Monday. Uh, Please connect with us on Instagram. Where are you at? We love it when you comment on stuff. Yeah, we love it. Comment. Uh, And please rate, review, and subscribe. Please. We love you guys. We love you guys. You're so cool. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And yeah, the more that you can engage with us... Um, the more that we can continue to put out cool content for you guys because we really do love doing this. Um, 
and it just helps us do that even more. It does. Well, until next week, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>